Hey, so back when Carly Roney and David Liu decided to launch a wedding magazine online, the internet was so basic that it barely had ads. But as the internet got bigger and bigger, so did the knot. And today it's grown into an international brand that helps people celebrate all kinds of milestones, weddings, babies, new homes, bar mitzvahs. This episode first ran in March of last year, and I think you're going to love this one because it's also extremely funny with a really great wedding scene. So here it is. We put together this deck. We practice this presentation. We go through this whole dog and pony, talk about what we're planning on doing and what we were going to build. And he looks up and he says, this has got to be the worst business plan I've ever seen. (laughs) And, And... the air just got sucked out of the room. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how one couple's disastrous wedding inspired their business, The Knot, the number one wedding planning site in the U.S., Right now, I've got three wedding invitations hanging on my fridge. And I sometimes wonder about the people behind those cards, the six people who are probably freaking out right now. The caterers, the flowers, the bridesmaids, the groomsmen, the venue, the hotel discounts for guests, the hair, the makeup, the photographer, the... I'm going to stop here because I'm starting to get stressed out and I'm already married. By the way, fun fact, the average wedding, the average wedding in the U.S. now costs $35,000. And the planning for it takes between nine months and a year. So my advice? Elope. And if that's not an option, you will probably at some point make your way to thenot.com. It's a multimedia platform that helps you plan your wedding. And it's a big business. The Knot is the center of a media group now valued at more than half a billion dollars, which is all the more remarkable because at one point during the dot-com bust, the Knot's stock price fell to 26 cents. But we'll get to that a little later. When founders Carly Roney and David Liu started the Knot in the late 1990s, it was more like a chat room. It was a place people could pop into and type in all caps, is anyone else freaking out about their wedding planning? Well, today, The Knot says it's used by 80% of all couples planning a wedding, which is also remarkable because David and Carly's wedding was kind of a disaster. They actually met briefly when they were both undergrads at NYU in the 1980s. They were both in the same film program, but it wasn't exactly love at first sight. Well, David was a senior and I was a freshman, and we didn't really talk during it because we might have exchanged two sentences in the entire year. Wow, the entire year. Yeah, because he looked like kind of a super senior snob to me. Mm. Um, Did you, but David, did you notice Carly at that time? Oh yeah, I had a a crush on her. You did already at that point. Oh yeah, but nothing ever came of it. So after college, Carly and David went their separate ways. David got a job working at a startup in Philadelphia where he made video yearbooks for high schools. And Carly was a script reader for a movie director in New York. But a few years later, in the early 90s, they both happened to be invited to a Christmas party by a former NYU professor. 
And I remember, like, looking across at this group of people and thinking, like, who's that guy with the ponytail? Why does he look so familiar? Hmm. You had a ponytail? (laughs) (laughs) So so you're like, uh, I don't know, your late 20s, David, at this point. Kind of just, you're like, yeah, I'll show up at this party. And (laughs) well, actually, I remember the doorbell ringing and hearing Carly's voice. And I immediately remembered her. Wow. And she walked in and made a beeline for the the vodka. And went up to you and said, hey, handsome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's funny is we ended up probably a little bit of We pretended that there was a project to work on (laughs) together. Hmm. We were like, we should talk about this more. Uh, Maybe we could work on something together. And so we both left the party with the premise of being back in touch. But but clearly there was was interest beyond, I mean, right? Or or, or was it just super earnest? Like you thought, yeah, let's let's collaborate. No, it was was totally a a ruse. Okay, it was a ruse. It was a ruse. We had our first date in February. We moved in together in June. We were married in July. Oh, my gosh. You jumped through this story so fast. <laughs> you've, you've gone from, from ponytail <laughs> at the party to being married, like, seven months later? Yeah. It, yeah. Well, was well, the irony that one of the starting ironies of the story is that, you know, I have divorced parents. I never thought I was getting married. I didn't believe in marriage. I thought people just sort of like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, it would be better to just be in love with someone maybe but have your own home just in case. And then I met this guy and I'm like, this is kind of amazing. He's so amazing. He lived in um, Philadelphia at the time. And I actually then moved right to D.C. at that time to work on a project at the Smithsonian. And so we started this like long distance romance between Philadelphia and D.C. And I don't know if it was like something in the air or it was just like mad true love. But one time we were sitting there and we were talking about taking a trip to um, Hong Kong. And I said, oh, um, you want to get married in Hong Kong? Uh-huh. Just like out of the blue. I don't and even I like, know what I was sure. thinking. He said, sure. And I was like, okay, then. Let's get married. Wow. So you go to your parents, Carly, and you say, you know that guy David I've been telling you about? Yeah, we're getting married. Well, what's funnier is like, I haven't told you about this guy, David. <laughs> oh, <see. Okay. laughs> But by the way, we're getting married. You might want to meet him prior to the wedding. And and uh, and did they say, Carly, this is crazy. This is not going to work. This is not how marriages last. That's exactly what they that said. That is exactly okay. what they said. Right. Um, and in fact, turns out, and I never knew this, they had sort of had a whirlwind romance and gotten married very quickly and ended up divorced. So this was just like their biggest fears mm. playing out in front of them. And, you know, because you're, you know, like young and spit and you're like, you just don't understand, mom and dad. So you you guys get married and uh, and how, how how's the wedding? What's the wedding like? <laughs> so we were trying to look back at why it was that we picked a date of July. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in D.C. In, in, in Washington, D.C., but, but which, which where, where I am, and it is a horrendously oppressive time <laughs> of the year. July in Washington, D.C. is, is a time when people leave. Yes, well, on so, a rooftop outside. On a rooftop outside in July <laughs> in Washington, D.C. This is going to be your wedding day. And really, how hard can it be? You're literally throwing a party for 80 people, like, like, what do we need? We need, like, a location. We really didn't have a place in mind, but we figured we could find one, so we sent out the invitations Which and were, just said... The invitations were postcards from the National Zoo that had pictures of pandas on them. <laughs> You're really said, making us sound crazy. <laughs> and it said, what, just show up in Washington, D.C. on this date? We'll give you details when you arrive? Exactly. It's a July 10th. 
location TBD. <laughs> okay, gotcha. But it was all, you know, kind of in the spirit of like, we're just going to throw this fun party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, our actually community around us pulled together. And that was the fun part about it. My aunts who live nearby were like, we're going to go get flowers at the farmer's market. Another aunt of mine was like, I have a friend who live who has a... There's a rooftop on the top of her building, which is a block away from your home. And then there was this Peruvian restaurant near us that we knew kind of served fun tapas and paella. So we went and asked them. I mean, we really just figured it out over the course of three weeks. And it sounded, at this point, I'm kind of loving it. Like it's like the first original DIY rooftop, you know, edgy wedding, alternate wedding. And the only problem was is that, you know, you still watch the news those days to find the weather. Mm -hmm. And we sort of turned on the news on the Wednesday before and saw the weather chart, which included... 108. It was 112. It was climbing. It was going to be 111 <laughs> degrees on our wedding day. What? 111 degrees? It, the, the story just gets worse from there. It's boiling hot. Our guests look like they're dying. Uh, we had, you know, booked this venue. The venue's air conditioning had broken from Ooh. trying to get the place cool. Oh, wow. And as we said, it was like a beautiful Peruvian place. And because, you know, we have a flair for the dramatic, mm-hmm. I thought that the most incredible thing would be if instead of serving the paella that we were serving behind the scenes, if they would bring out the paella oh, and kind yeah. of walk it through the room. The giant plate of paella, <laughs> right? Because that's a great the idea. Clams yeah. and mussels. And? Yes. <laughs> So my my only horrifying part of my wedding yeah. day was turning, looking up, and seeing my grandmother's face as they walked this steaming plate of paella by her. I mean, she was just horrified. <laughs> Everyone's really drenched in sweat. Drenched in sweat, and this steaming, fishy. I mean. It was like, oh, my God, this is such a colossal disaster. Everyone is so completely uncomfortable. There's no air conditioning. And really, everybody just wants snow cones. Everyone (laughs) wants the hell out of there is what they want. And we walked away from that evening being like, oh, my God, I never want to do anything related to weddings ever again. (laughs) What a crazy industry. Why isn't it easier? Why isn't there a place to find this information? I just like, yeah, yeah, it was exactly all the things we, we thought would be horrible about planning a wedding were and so we slammed the door and um, never wanted to think about it again. So 1993, you are married, you uh, move in, you're living together in Washington, D.C. What, what are you guys doing at that point in your lives? You're still at Smithsonian, Carly. Yes. We finished the project. We all moved back, back to, to New, New York. York. To New York, okay. Start grad school. Start grad school, right. So you start working on your ideas and projects and... So in the very first semester, uh, I'm taking this class on interactive media and this new technology that was going to transform the world was CD-ROMs. Yes. And, yes, uh, they were going right? to transform the world. <laughs> exactly. They were, yeah. And we started noodling on this idea that this project that Carly had been working on all summer was going to be the largest, single largest collection of Smithsonian objects collected 
from all the different museums and it was being brought to Japan and it was going to talk about American history. And we said, that's such a shame that the American audience will never get to see this. Why don't we see if the Smithsonian will hire us to produce the sort of epic American history disc? You know, it has the Dizzy Gillespie's trumpet and the ruby slippers and the Apollo space capsule. And, you know, all the work is already done. We can just, you know, scan it and put it in and some animations, music, and we have a CD-ROM. And yeah. uh, we pitched the Smithsonian, and they thought it was an awesome idea. We thought they had a budget. <laughs> and, they said, <laughs> and they said, great, you guys, if you can find someone who will pay for it, you can do it. Um, Which is already far-fetched that the right, Smithsonian no, would agree to have two people who know nothing mm. about anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and we walked into the Egghead software store and started pulling CD-ROMs off the shelf and writing down the names of the publishers and started faxing proposals to people. Wow. And uh, we had this one group out in Portland, Oregon, called us up immediately, said, we're doing edutainment discs. This is right in the center of a bullseye, an American history disc with the Smithsonian brand. Uh, they flew out, uh, took us to Smith & Walensky for a big steak dinner. And at the dinner, the guy writes on a cocktail napkin, one gold master, American history CD-ROM, Smithsonian content, uh, $100,000 budget, six-month delivery date, sign here. What? Wait, <laughs> you guys have no experience. No. You just no. pitch this half-baked idea to the Smithsonian. <laughs> you then fax this <laughs> half-baked idea blindly to a bunch of publishers, yeah. and they this one company bites. Yeah, and we 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 actually said, can we can we go to the bar area to discuss this for a second? <laughs> and we go in, and we're like, is this is this binding? Is this a real contract? What what happens? And we just said, you know what, whatever, let's just go, let's just sign it. And we yeah. went in, we signed it, and the guy turns to us and says, you know what, you know this is not a binding contract. We said we assume so, and he but, said, but this was a test. This was a test to see if you guys had the chutzpah to actually sign this <laughs> this napkin. And he said, let's do it. Wow. So you get this money, and and you start working on this project right away? Yes. I mean, that was it. We, like, yeah. basically founded a business. We used all of our film school experience, actually. We were suddenly right. like, we're oh, producers. good. Yeah. Um, we and hired we literally hired and... all my classmates. Everybody. Yeah. Everyone said, we're on board. I mean, you know, we're, we're all in school for this. And suddenly to be able to create a commercial product with the Smithsonian brand was exciting. So you, you deliver this to the Smithsonian, and then they make this CD-ROM available in their, in their shops and, and stuff? Well, so the publisher uh, was actually very aggressive about getting the disc out. And, you know, no one was really making any money on CD-ROMs. And, and pretty quickly, we realized that this was not going to be the medium that was going to change everything. But this publisher managed to get the CD-ROM OEM bundled with every one of the early iMacs. So if oh, you wow. bought the, one of those iMacs, you got our disc. And as a result, wow. you know, we got maybe, a, I think it was like a dollar per disc that was actually distributed. So it became a windfall for us. Yeah, wow. no. So millions of these the discs. It's sort of one of the top grossing <laughs> discs of all time because it got bundled. It was such an easy IMAC. win. And that was the, yeah, that turned out to be the sort of launch of our company. So you walked you walked out of that project with like some cash to, to play with. Enough <laughs> cash to keep the people that Employed. we had hired around. At least I think right. they're like... I dropped out of grad school because right. suddenly I realized, well, we have this company now and we're going to work on the next project. And we were a little digital media studio. But in the middle of this, working on this project together, one of the four of, like, one of the four of us, two, our two Michael. friends, Michael and Rob, 
they sort of said, hey, guys, don't you think we should be thinking about, you know, we work well together. Do you think we should be thinking about something, doing something that isn't work for hire for somebody else? Like something that was, was yours that you guys would own. Right. We started brainstorming. What can we build? You know, because our vision was now to create this multi-branded, multi-platform content studio. And we started looking at the different categories. And we said, you know, sports, news, entertainment. Like, that's what were all you doing? You were, you were, like, brainstorming? Right. And that's what's funny. Like, the... the the later story makes it sound like it was all like, and then on her, after her horrible experience planning her wedding, the idea was birthed. And in reality, what happened is that Michael actually was like, hey, this guy friend of mine, he wants to do like this online shopping thing and something related to like registry and maybe we should do something in weddings. Huh. And I think David and I look like we'd like seen a ghost. Like, like oh, oh my God, no, no way. way. Jesus, weddings do you know anything suck. about the wedding? Well, they yeah. suck. Yeah. <laughs> like completely disaggregated. Mm. Like the industry is old fashioned. Right. And then of course you have that moment you're like, right. It's a disaster, and it would mm-hmm. completely and fundamentally change if you introduced technology to it. Yeah. You know, there was not an MBA between the four of us. So you're <laughs> talking about four film grads. So our research was going to the magazine store and pulling different categories like, you know, bridal, travel, Epicurean. And we looked at these wedding magazines like, wow, they're huge. Look, they're 400 pages. Just to, just to sort of understand, like, you, you, you decide that you want to do something in content and weddings was probably the the way to go but what what would it be like a i mean this is like 96 97 i mean a website a message board yeah this is 95, 95. So there was no yeah. websites so what was it going to be like a way for people to just list their services so we were content people so we thought the best place to start would be putting incredible like fresh content on the internet like, and the only here's way cool idea for your wedding yes yep and so the only way i would agree to do this the one who was suddenly i was looked at immediately like you're the woman you're <laughs> got to be interested in weddings i was like the only way i am touching this is if we do something really really different like the reason we didn't access any of the information that was out there when we were planning our wedding is because it was written for people who were completely had a different worldview than mm. me. I did not dream about my wedding every day from my, when I was born. I did not, I wasn't marrying in a traditional way. I mean, I have like an intercultural marriage with divorced parents. I mean, every problem there could be in a wedding was in my wedding. And those magazines made you feel like crap. Yeah. They wanted you to quit your job, sit with your mommy having bonbons, and dream up mm. your big day. Yeah. And calling it your big day. Your that just big wasn't day. my thing. I and think, none I think of we... my friends either were that way. Like, all the women I know were like, it was, you know, it was the, at this point, it's like the 90s. Mm. You're hip, you're forward looking, you care about fashion, and there's like a whole like it's just it's such a different movement among young people and that wasn't reflected at all it was like the industry that had been left behind Mm. our whole overall attitude and the reason why we called it the knot was that we wanted our brand to be very like alternative and differentiated and not be you know the kind of traditional cookie cutter these are the rules way to plan a wedding. We wanted it to be like, dare to do it differently. And, you know, if you looked at the landscape, you know, Brides Magazine had been around for 50 years, Modern Bride for 35 years, Martha Stewart was like a hot thing, been around for 10 years. And we didn't know which way to 
could attack that, and yeah. we suddenly realized, based on you know also Carly's you know belief in the dis- the differentiation of our brand, that we would be- become weddings for the real world, and we define that as uh, interracial couples. Uh, interdenominational couples, same-sex couples, hipster couples, right? right. You're pregnant. Yeah. You already have babies. You're divorced. You know, second marriages. All the stuff that we knew that the traditional media companies couldn't touch. You know, these are the marginal areas, and we're going to own. We're going to declare ownership of those. We also had a really big sense of humor. We right. wanted to be, to be irreverent because we thought that that was sort of attitudinal. If you wanted to talk to brides and grooms, not their mothers, you needed a new voice. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand, if you were to describe this to your grandmother who was appalled at the paella at your wedding, <laughs> would you have said, so grandma, we're, we're we're making basically a magazine, but it's going to be in the computer, in the internet. Was Is that a fair description of, of how you were thinking about it? There were, yeah, two components. One, it was like the world's coolest wedding magazine mixed with a community. Right. And Remember, this was on AOL. So we launched on AOL. AOL first. had like these message boards and these right. chat rooms, chat rooms and, and like yeah. sites. So it was a, it was you you partnered with AOL to to start this up. Well, they provided the seed financing. How did you even get to AOL? So, <laughs> so friend Michael, of a friend of a friend, exactly. Yeah. So Michael, our rainmaker co-founder, uh, had an in and managed to get us an audience with Ted Leonsis, wow. who was running the sure. greenhouse and was making investments. Yes. And I remember we put together this deck. We practiced this presentation. Carly, Michael, and Rob were like the, the, the marketing and presentation geniuses. And we rent our little car, drive down to Vienna, Virginia, and we had this audience with Ted. And we go through this whole dog and pony, talk about the, what we're planning on doing and what we were going to build. And he looks up and he says... This has got to be the worst business plan I've ever seen. Wow! <laughs> and 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 we were, you just the air just got sucked out of the yeah. room. And but by the way, how did you propose to make money off of this in that in that plan? Well, we we hadn't gotten to that point yet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, but he basically said he was like, "Look, wait a minute. What's the lifetime value? I mean, how, how long is an average engagement?" And we said, "You know, nine to thirteen months." And he said, "So your your average lifetime value of your customer is nine to thirteen months. How do you ever plan on recouping?" any of your marketing costs in nine months. This is impossible. Right. If your audience churns 100% every year, and you every, never, if you do your job right and they find the right person, you will never have them as a customer again. again right. <laughs> to this day, I credit our, our co-founder, Rob, who stood up and said, you know, we're going to sell advertising. And Ted looks at us and says, there's no advertising on AOL. There's uh, no advertising on the internet. <laughs> and, and, and we said, well, we plan on selling it. And, but how uh, would? He, but if there was no advertising, no advertising was allowed on AOL partnerships. No one had done it. No, no one, one had, had done, done it. it. Okay. Yeah. There's no IAB. There are no banners. It was you know all basically a subscription business. And and Ted looks at us kind of funny. And then he picks up the ma- you know the bride's magazine we brought as sort of like the, the show, and, show tell. and tell. And I still remember he picks it up, brings it to his nose, and flips through the pages. He goes, I don't know anything about this industry, but I smell money. He goes. <laughs> Let's fund them. Wow. <laughs> so in 90 seconds, we went from the worst business idea they had ever heard to, you know what, let's give these guys a chance. When we come back, how David and Carly launched The Knot, watched its value skyrocket with the dot-com boom, and then fall to rock bottom with the crash. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M. 
from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness, the research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So in 1996, when Carly Roney and David Liu pitched their idea for The Knot, the bigwigs at AOL wound up giving them a pretty hefty amount of cash. We got our seed financing by $1.6 million. I think it was their largest investment at that time, too, in any content partners. Ironically, though, like... It isn't really that much money if you have to buy computers right. for $7,000 each desktop. Or... Right. And, you know, there was no such thing as open source software. So we were paying software licenses. You know, there was no WeWork. So we had to find an office to rent. In New York? In New York. What were you doing to build the site? We wanted to make sure that the audience came to our site would see something fresh and new every day. So we treated this like a daily publication, like a newspaper. We had 10 content channels. They had to be fresh content, you know, distributed every single day. What do you mean 10 content channels? You go to the site and there's like 10 tabs. Yeah. Right. There's like planning and fashion mm, and right. bridesmaids. The great and escape was the yeah, honeymoon, honeymoon channel. So a lot of it was just producing and publishing content constantly. And who did you get to write that content? Um, I had this connection to a, a group of fun, really fun young writers. Mm. They were um, the people who wrote for Sassy Magazine, so really strong attitude. Um, we had men and women. All had great senses of humor. Really good senses of humor. And we had that. They, You know, my... Um, my litmus test is if they would never, ever, ever write for a wedding magazine, then they could write for me. <laughs> the other key piece of it, though, was really understanding. And this we didn't we didn't know going into it, but really realizing how important the community was and managing the community and building out the kind of platform of the different message boards and how to create connections between people. And that is where the sort of explosive, what, you know, sort of the early concept of like a social network, right? How you right. crowdsource amazing information. And that's where AOL was the perfect training ground for that because the key sort of the gravitational center of all this stuff were in their chat rooms. Right. And, you know, these chat rooms, you had to try to turn into these thriving, continuous conversations. And we all had to man the chat rooms. We, we had aliases. Like, mine was Anya. And I would sit in this chat room waiting for people to show up. And most people tend to just lurk. They wanted to hear and want, read other people's conversations. Yeah. And you had to try to figure out a way to get people engaged and get mm -hmm. them to participate. And so... I always had this one thing that I would write, and to get people started, I would say, uh, my fiancé forced me to buy a dress two sizes too small. 
and said if I can't fit in the dress on the day of the wedding to not show up. But you would just make this up? I would make this up. You just David make was up the these, only one. Yeah. I want to say that this was unsanctioned. <laughs> <laughs> but you but had to, like, would to spur a conversation. <laughs> and boy, was that the fire started. The room would explode. Yeah. Everyone who oh was lurking would gosh, jump you in. You were a troll. You were an early internet <laughs> exactly. troll. Exactly. Well, and I, can then, and I could slowly then back away, and that room would just keep going for hours and hours <laughs> and hours. Either that like, or you yeah. drop mother-in-law, mother, word oh, mother-in-law yeah, right. always oh. gets a chat room wow. going and uh, or, you know, misbehaving bridesmaids. It's just all about like putting the theme in play. Mm. And but what it did was it taught us to listen to our audience. Yeah. It did. Was it, were you, was the site making money pretty fast through, you know, those AOL subscription dollars? Uh, no. no. Okay. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, if you think about the internet at the time, which was, I mean, mostly men. Yeah. Even an AOL was probably the most women of any place on the internet, and still that was mostly men. Yeah. And then people getting married, since there are only two million of them in, in America at any given point in time, you're starting to like get down to a very small set of people who could mm. even potentially be our customers. But I think in those first week, I remember our, our like monthly visitor count. Like 15,000. Oh, I think it was 7,000. <laughs> and we were like 7,000 out of 2 million Americans. Like we've got a long way to go. Yeah. What we really had to do was go out. Our first hire was a salesperson. Yeah, you needed advertising. We needed right. advertising. In fact, one of our first advertisers, uh, in fact, I think she may have been our first advertiser, was Nicole Miller. And she had this bridesmaid's dress line that was cute, and she wanted to market it as something that you could wear again. And Nicole came to our office, and I remember we were showing her the little pieces of art that we had created that were essentially the first banners. You know, mm. there were little buttons that would sit on the site. And, you know, Rob would explain to her, hey, you know, we, we, people can click on this. And she said, well, what, what will my buttons do? Mm-hmm. And we realized that she didn't have a website to link to. And he said very quickly, well, they'll link to a catalog of dresses that we'll build for you. And she was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And, you know, we were basically selling links and buttons and yeah. clicks that were leading to other places that we had to suddenly create for the advertisers. Which, which the adverti- I mean, for the advertisers was this new shiny thing that they didn't understand. And they were like, well, these guys understand it. But, but I, I have to assume that the ad rates at that time weren't that high, right? They weren't, they weren't paying that much money at that time, or were they? They weren't. I think our first year total revenues were maybe seventy thousand. Yeah, seventy thousand dollars. Remember, like seventy one thousand. You could not. I mean, the one point six million was that money was burning quickly. It was. It was almost gone. We were. We were rapidly running out of money, and uh, what saved us was uh, we had found a amazing book agent, Chris Tomasino, and our, you know, remember our aspirations was to always to create these multi-branded platform, and she actually managed to get a bidding war from multiple publishers on a three-book deal for mm. The Knot. And that money, actually, that infusion of cash saved The Knot at that time? We it, we lived off of that advance for probably a year. What was the advance? About $350,000. For three books? Yeah. And so you put that back into the company... But then you had to write books. You had to write three <laughs> You're damn telling books. Me. <laughs> well, Carly, we we had just had our first baby, and so Carly literally came back <laughs> from maternity leave of all of maybe three weeks. And I still, my, the image I still have of her is like breastfeeding our daughter while 
furiously typing away at the computer because we had to deliver the first manuscript at oh, a certain time. Just sounds miserable. Yeah. Wait, and, and did, <laughs> I'm getting hives listening to this my own story. <laughs> did you go to investors? Did you think we need to go to like private equity people or you know venture capitalists and try to get some money? We 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 hadn't thought about it yet. We were trying to think of other ways that we, we could, could make, make money. money and build the business. Yeah. And we had this idea and we said, you know, the thing that brides seem to be really vexed about is this whole registry process. Yes. Isn't there a way to like completely reinvent that and create an online gift registry where they you're can like, register everything they want? You're not picking the gift yeah. anyway. So right. why couldn't you just like buy it on yes. the internet? <laughs> and we said, this has got to be the thing we do. And that actually prompted us to go try to raise money to build the first online gift registry. So remember, this is 1997. Yeah. And so when we, we just act, launched the website in July. Right. Yeah. When we act like it's super mind-blowing to think of an online gift registry, you have to remember that like nobody even really bought anything on the internet yet. Mm. And and so how did you, what did you do? How, how were you going to make that a reality? We needed to raise money. Yeah, that's when it <laughs> became extremely clear because no one had online gift registries yet or really there was right. no way to do it. We actually realized that to do this, we would have to get the inventory ourselves. Right. At that time, our, our bride count or whatever we called it, our member count was really growing in a very significant way. And mm-hmm. word of mouth was our only way we were marketing. We and we didn't spend any money advertising. No, but like brides who discovered us, and this I think was a lot about our brand and our attitude. Like once you found us, you wanted to tell anyone you knew who was getting married about us. And so we were growing in that way like wildfire. Like yeah. people really were very like loyal and excited mm. about the brand, but it still wasn't a way to make money. So when you took the concept of the registry to uh, potential investors, what did they say? Uh, it it was a really long slog. I mean, it was hard to raise money for anything that was female-centric in the digital space. Hmm. And the fact that a large component of our business would now be predicated on e-commerce on top of advertising, you know, the, pe- you know, the first question people said was like, they're not going to give you a credit card number. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, the, you know, people are too paranoid about that. Uh, they're not going to register. They're not going, you know, and, and I think we probably were marketing f- for almost a year before we came across uh, the venture capitalists out on the West Coast that said, you know what, this is really interesting. Hmm. And I think, you know, we're going to take a flyer on this. How much money did you guys raise? Uh, $3 million. We launched the registry and... Was it on the not? Was it like the not.com yeah, slash registry? Yep, whatever? exactly. And we, new tab. Yeah, yeah, new tab. And we suddenly saw within, I think, three or four months, we had close to 150,000 couples registered in our registry. To put that into context, that's more than what Bloomingdale's was registering back then. Wow. So uh, 150,000 people registered within the first few months. How did they even know about about the registry? This is actually the critical thing where Carly was the, the secret weapon. Carly became the person who, when we published our first book, suddenly appeared on the Today Show, mm-hmm. suddenly appeared and, and became sort of the... Kind the of wedding lifestyle kind of yes. guru. guru. Exactly. Meanwhile, not telling the world <laughs> word one about my actual wedding day. I remember the first time I was on TV, a friend of mine was like, um, I was at your wedding. <laughs> 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 like, yeah. And all of a sudden, you're a wedding guru? <laughs> 
So were you profitable at that point, or were you still no, kind of... No, yeah. we were bleeding. <laughs> we were How bleeding. were you funding this? Uh, the three million, la- we, we made that last, um, but we were, we, we essentially were looking to raise another round. And uh, within a year, we raised another $15 million. Also, no one in our office had air-on chairs. Like, right. everything <laughs> was Ikea or hand-me-down. Or I mean, we didn't, we sort of, that that whole culture of the internet companies yeah, now. No where you foosball have to be, tables. No foosball mm-hmm. tables. No, no free catered snacks. lunches. You know, you were lucky if you got a pizza. W- were you guys nervous at all? I mean, you had a kid, and, uh, and eventually you'd have two more. But, but at that point, you had a kid. Um, you were not making any money because you were you were just funding this company. So you guys are probably earning nothing. <laughs> no, I know. I think we made thirty five thousand dollars a year, if I remember right. correctly, which <laughs> seemed kind of unfair and exorbitant. Like <laughs> we shouldn't be taking this money. <laughs> I mean, did you guys ever have conversations, you know, at night and, and where you were like, I don't know if this is going to work. Maybe we should just like, I don't know, maybe I should go to law school or something. Like, did you ever, or were you totally confident this was going to work out? I don't think we felt we had an option. You know, when we had BFAs, <laughs> we, were not, we were unemployable, so we we had to make this thing work. So, uh, so by this point, you guys, um, you've got the the gift registry going, um, and, and things seem to be humming along, I guess. And, and then, uh, in in two thousand, you decide to to take the company public on the Nasdaq. So, I'm assuming this was to raise more cash. Yes. So in '99, we actually uh, had just raised money to uh, build out and and flesh out the registry. We raised 15 million dollars, and literally a week later, we were approached by bankers who said, eh, "The window is going to close. You need to go public." And and we were, you know, we we had fresh money in the bank, and I, I couldn't understand why there was such urgency. But uh, yeah. we took their advice, fortunately, and. Uh, within, I think, seven months of that meeting, we were going public. So that was December uh, 2nd, 1999. We go public. The entire internet world collapses four months later. And we um, were really lucky to we have le- that additional yeah, we $35 million. Dollars. So you, it, when you went public, it raised $35 million more million. Yes. And then four months later, the dot-com crash. Does that do anything to your stock price? We never had the super spiky jump, and we didn't have a super cataclysmic crash. It just, over the course of a year and a half, went from $20 and settled down to $0.26. So people lost their shirts on this. Yes. Presumably, you guys had a lot of shares, too. Oh yeah, we were not allowed to sell. I mean, you know, we we were locked up, and by the time the six month lockup had released, you know, we and honestly, we we were also we were way too loyal and dedicated. We did not want there to be any indication that the founders had lost faith, and so we were going to hold on to the bloody. But, end. but the, I mean, the optics of going from twenty dollars to twenty six cents over a year and a half must have been rough. I mean, there must have been market analysts and people even in the industry were saying this this company's not going to last. Oh, it was horrific. We had our competitors faxing our stock charts to our advertisers saying, look what's happening. They're going out of business. Wow. Do you really want to give them wow. more money? And did did, the, did that in any way affect, you know, how much money you had to spe- you, you had to, to use? Like, did you, have to, did, did you have to fire people? Did you have to lay people off at that time? Or, or could you still kind of plug along? We we never had layoffs. We always we were able to downsize through attrition, but we never formally had to lay people off. In part because we were always running relatively lean, um, and there were people who panicked and and 
basically sort of got out. Um, yeah, I think the biggest challenge was controlling the like psychology of your team. I bet. Who right. they didn't understand. Your advertisers didn't understand the distinction between your growing revenue and how that had nothing to do with your a stock price. I mean, it is Most kind of illogical. Most people don't understand it. <laughs> right. No, exactly. So between your young staff, who also is looking like, remember those options mm-hmm. that I got? <laughs> They're underwater by about $9 or and, our, and, and advertisers. So there was so much emotion control. I think mm. that was the hardest part, to keep people focused. And it was exhausting. And also, you do go home at night and you're like, remember when we were actually going to walk away from this business with, <laughs> you know, $30 million uh, together and now we have like $300,000? It doesn't seem worth mm. it. It doesn't seem where there were definitely moments where you feel like exhausted. Right. The low point was the summer of 2001, where the stock dropped below a dollar for over 90 days. You get delisted. NASDAQ delisted you. We get delisted. No longer in the newspaper. No, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, you had to Just go down to DC with, right. and beg NASDAQ to, to reconsider. And they and I still remember there was a little tribunal. You make your case. And then uh, this old gentleman looks over and says, I'm sorry, we, you know, we're still going to have to delist you. But you have a great little business. Don't let it fail. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean when door. you get delisted? You you still you're still a stock, right? You're still a stock. Uh, you're trading in the bulletin boards, but the key difference is now the major funds are no longer allowed to hold your stock. If you are if you're so, delisted, you cannot. Yeah, so the, the big f- funds are not going to invest in you. Yeah, the fidelities and the, mm. the and and unfortunately, you know, that's where a lot of the volume and the support comes um, from with public stocks. And so the moment we got delisted, two million shares just automatically gets ejected mm. into the system. And that's when the stock just really cratered. Uh, we went down from like 90 cents to that 26 cents uh, in a matter of minutes. And, and to be listed in the NASDAQ, you have to be above a dollar for a certain number of months. Uh, to get relisted, mm-hmm. you have to be a, above $5 for 180 days without institutional support. And so essentially, once you're delisted, it's almost impossible to presumably to get back on there because you would have to convince people, individuals, to buy shares, right? Exactly. So, in, in fact, <laughs> I spent the next three years going to dentist investor club meetings <laughs> at the back of the Red Lion Inn, going to small cap uh, you know, conferences, drumming up retail support to try to get the stock uh, Because that was the only way you could increase the share price. Yeah. So you had to get yeah. individual investors to just buy shares. Yeah, you needed <laughs> exactly you needed to. Thank you, dentists of America. <laughs> that just sounds so grueling. It was, and I think you know. It, it, I think that's when you put on like twenty five pounds <laughs> too. Well, I had this one meeting with a competitor, and I think it, he said these fatal words that I that sort of propelled this thing forward. Uh, they saw this as an opportunity to acquire us. And they said, listen, you know, you have a broken IPO. We should just put these companies together, mm. you know, 70-30 their way. We can, you know, repackage it and go public you again were, three You years. were offered, this was an, uh, another company offered to buy you out. Yeah. And he said, because you're delisted. Yeah. And getting relisted is like carrying a gorilla up 30 flights of stairs. It's impossible. It's too hard. And I remember the day we got relisted in 2005, I was dying to send him a postcard with a big gorilla on it saying, 30 flights delivered. Take that. (laughs) So it is four years you're off the NASDAQ. It's a long time. I'm trying to figure out why you didn't just cut your losses and say, we're still young. You know, we can still kind of try something else out. Um, this is not going to be the way that we're going to make a sustainable life. 
I think it was because we were never doing this for the money. Well, but you had you know, kids. You needed at a certain point. You there's you need to have some money. We yeah, but I think it was. I think it was the work. I, 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 we were launching a TV show. We were launching, you know, a national magazine. There were so many really exciting things that we were building. You know, the nest came, the the bump came. The and nest and the bump were like the next iterations. The nest, obviously, about uh, as if anyone knows about your home, and the yeah. bump about babies, children. Yeah, yeah, our audience had been begging us for years to take them beyond the wedding day. And we, you know, people on our staff who had like grown beyond the wedding phase and we all had babies, right. they all wanted to launch it. So it just seemed incredibly fun. There was so much more to do. We always said to each other, like, if this ever becomes like super boring, we should get out. I mean, we're not particularly like planner people anyway. We didn't think about our future. We were just thinking right. we like, never six months the word in advance. Exists. Mm. Exit wasn't part of our vocabulary. I mean, you you get relisted in '05. In you then launch the Nest and the Bump um, as part of the the whole sort of media empire. You're working on a bunch of different projects. At what point were you? Did you guys feel like okay, we've turned a corner? Like we are, we're going to be okay. Not we're going to be more than okay. I'm not sure we're there yet. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think once we were like profitable and our it's like we, Sisyphus, like you keep thinking you're ahead and then all of a sudden the boulder seems really heavy and yeah. you're going backwards and you have to keep pushing again. Mm. But. I mean in two thousand six and seven we wound up uh we, we bought Wedding Channel. There was unbelievable sort of uh frothy expectations on what that acquisition was going to net us and the stock hits thirty two dollars. We have a billion dollar market cap and you know, then precipitates the next you know, minor nuclear winter where the stock starts to decline again mm-hmm. because you just can't live up to those expectations. And then 2008 happens, and mm-hmm. it's the Great Recession. And does, where does the stock price go at that point? Our stock actually held up relatively well. I think, you know, most media companies were down 20%. Yeah. We grew 5%. Yeah. You know, we actually grew that year because a lot of the marketers realized that the only people who are going to continue to spend money during this great recession are, are brides and grooms. Hmm. You know, weddings were truly recession-proof. What do you think it is about, about your personalities that work so well together? Because you, you guys went through such intense emotional highs, highs and lows building this business. So what, what do you think it was about the other person in the, in the relationship that made it work? This is where you declare your love of me and how amazing I am. <laughs> this is uh, this is the romance moment. Uh, exactly. You know, I I think we were ultimately so different as people. Huh. I wouldn't say that we necessarily worked well together, but we were incredibly complementary. Where there's no overlap, there's less conflict. You know, and when there was overlap, oh my God, it was like World War Three. Yeah. Fireworks, yeah. 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 Like the two of us are both incredibly bullheaded. There are really distinct differences. Like David can kind of look up, look ahead, and think of something like really bold and strategic way down the road, and then. I can grab that ball really quickly, believe in it. Like, I'm not a naysayer, so I'm like, okay, you want to do that? And then I figure out how to get that thing done. Hmm. When you think about the fact that you both have bachelor's degrees in fine arts and you met, um, you met, you know, a long time ago and you, you, you probably were never going to, had you pursued a traditional path, never really going to make a whole lot of money. The fact that you built a company that's now, I guess, worth close to half a billion dollars, does it seem like a dream? Does it seem like weird? Or now that you look back on it, do you think, yeah, okay, that makes sense? 
we, we're going to do this. It's surreal. I mean, at one point, someone said, do you realize 700 families are gainfully employed because of what you've built and that, you know, they can send their kids to college and buy homes and actually uh, thrive. And th- there's a great sense of satisfaction to yeah. that. I think I think the, you know, the, the company has always been this, just this extension of our family. And we, there's a great deal of pride in having been able to build something that is sustainable and, and can continue to grow that way. So we never really cared that much about money. Yeah. But I can tell you, not being worried about it's money, different. that is the yeah. true, like, that is what I'm so grateful for. I still is. panic, but... <laughs> yeah, but that's like a personality, kind of, you know... Disorder. Disorder. <laughs> you know, out of all the people I've interviewed, you, I think more than anybody else, your business really reflects the progression of your adult lives. And what I love about it is you you clearly did all these um, very imperfectly, like your wedding was kind of a, a disaster. And then you, you know, you kind of struggled with kids because you were busy and you didn't probably do everything that all the perfect parents were doing. And all these companies that you started reflect all the things that you've done in your lives. And I think almost even, you know, more to that point, our whole set of brands kind of celebrated the imperfect. Mm. I think what appealed to people is that we were like, there is no perfect. Although there are some parents who do seem perfect. I'm not friends with any of them. (laughs) No, in fact, (laughs) when I picked up Carly from the hospital with our daughter the first time. I really don't want you to tell this. (laughs) No, go ahead. In our used Honda, we, our, our friend had come to help, and we had, you know, Havana in the little car seat in the back. And as we're driving back from Mount Sinai, our friend asks... Yeah, we stop at a stoplight, and there's, like, a CBS Dwayne. or Dwayne Reed outside the window. She's like, so you have all the things you need, right? Like, diapers. <laughs> we were like, right, diapers. <laughs> we were She's about like, to, David, We were about to bring over. home a newborn. <laughs> we didn't have anything There were home. three diapers in yeah. the kit. Yeah, yeah. The hospital, hospital, right? yes. We were going to be Fine. Oh, my God. Um, I think it also made us good business people. Yeah. Because I think we never walked around with a hubris and notion that we knew better. Mm. And that the process of discovery and the process of learning had was constant. And And a team effort. Yeah. And I think, you know, we would never be in a position to say, oh, my God, we know exactly how things in weddings should be done or how things in pregnancy should be done. We learned it, you know, by the seat of our pants. And we embraced the people who were courageous enough to do that as well. And and you didn't. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs will have like a spouse who will, you know, teach music lessons on the side or, you know, will be a school teacher or a lawyer or have some kind of income coming in. Like you guys did not have a plan B because you're both in this. No, this was the high wire act. (laughs) Yeah. Although I think back, like I would have hated to be married to an entrepreneur and not be one. One, you like never see them. And they're just totally stressed out all the time. And I think that it was like super, super stressful and like really dangerous and painful and complicated in so many ways. And it was the most romantic, amazing, exciting, exhilarating thing on the other side. I mean, it was literally both. Like you're building something from scratch. And it was like the early days, you know, so it was so exciting and you're in the thick of it and you're hiring these people. I mean, there was something so exciting to be doing it together. That's Carly Roney and David Liu, founders of The Knot. Last year, in a $1 billion deal, 
Their parent company merged into a new company called The Knot Worldwide, which includes The Knot, The Bump, The Nest, and a website called How He Asked, which is a marriage proposal planner. Who knew? Both David and Carly have moved on from the brand and are working on other projects, which hopefully means more time for the kids, for hanging out with friends, and never, according to Carly, ever serving paella. And please do stick around, because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick thanks to our 2019 lead sponsor of How I Built This, Campaign Monitor, the radically easy solution to email marketing. 80% of retail professionals indicate email marketing as the highest driver of customer retention. Try it for free at campaignmonitor.com. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA. Every week, we bring you a mix of reporting, diverse voices, and coverage of current and emerging issues that impact our lives. Latino USA is one of a kind, featuring stories from the heart, stories that make you think and maybe even inspire you to action. Listen and subscribe now. Hey, thanks for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today we're updating a story that first ran over a year ago. It begins with Tyson Walters, who lives in Los Angeles with his dog, Harley. My St. Bernard, um, she was the true inspiration behind the product. Now, Harley, like a lot of dogs, is lovable. But also, like a lot of dogs, she sheds all over the place. So there was a lot of conversations to people before I brought her over, as in, you're going to vacuum once she leaves. Or even riding in cars, no one wanted to ride with me because they knew they're going to be full of of hair. And Tyson started to take this problem very seriously. I researched and researched, like, what could I do? And there was no solution. So I kind of started to create it. Now, this was around 2011 when Tyson just got out of college and moved back in with his parents. And they didn't want Harley shedding all over the house either. So they thought, maybe we can design some kind of bodysuit for her. You know, something to really get all that hair and keep it in. And something that was punchable for the dog, too. So... You know, the first idea started from just a blanket and kind of messing around with that and trying to make some leg holes, everything from like more of a net. And you can probably imagine how this all went down. Tyson and his mom worked with an old sewing machine in the living room. They tried a bunch of different designs. And we finally kind of came up with, it just looked like a baggy shirt that the dog wore. But the shirt was too baggy and the fabric wasn't breathable enough. And so Tyson and his mom had basically hit a wall. So he went on Craigslist and he found a professional seamstress. She could see it in her head better. And then she would recommend different materials too. So that's when she started bringing in the stretchy material, kind of like the Under Armour and Nike athletic shirts you see. That's when it finally came together. And what they eventually came up with was this form-fitting suit, kind of like body spanks for dogs. Different colors and nine different sizes. Chihuahua to Great Dane. Most dogs are actually okay with it. The fabric's so stretchy, it really doesn't hinder their movement at all. 
and I would double check with vets and stuff like that, and they would all give it the okay as well. But remember, the whole point is to keep your dog's hair from winding up all over your house or your car. All the hair is just contained pretty much in a suit. Um, so you just take it off outside, you can shake it out. And while you're at it, you can shake off all the weird looks you're gonna get from your neighbors. They laugh and say, what is this? And you have to see this to believe me, because when I looked at all the pictures of these dogs in their Spanx, I almost wondered whether they were kind of embarrassed. Anyway, Tyson called his dog suit the Shed Defender, and just a few months after we first ran the story, Tyson made it onto Shark Tank, where one of the sharks invested $250,000 for 25% of the business. And this year, Tyson is expecting to hit over a million dollars in sales. Oh, and by the way, the Shed Defender is not just an indoor suit, a lot of people use it at the beach or in the woods or wherever to keep their dogs clean. And if the dog needs to go, well, there's a zipper. The space is wide enough for the dog to use the restroom. And then once they come back in, you can just zip it on up. If you want to find out more about Shed Defender or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build. NPR.org. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at HIBT at NPR.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. Our show was produced this week by Rachel Faulkner with original music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Candace Lim, Julia Carney, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Sequoia Carrillo. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now.